the Anton Savage Show Sunday. Brought to you by PwC. Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. On News Talk. My next guest has managed to do what some would have thought is, is impossible. He's gotten not just six separate teams, six separate countries and their rugby football unions to agree to allow him to make a behind-the-scenes documentary of the Six Nations. It is the Six Nations Full Contact. It's up on Netflix if you want to see it. His name is uh, James Gay Reese. James, good morning. Morning. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, James. Before we talk about the um, Six Nations Full Contact, your CV is quite something. You have Amy, the um, uh, Amy Winehouse documentary. You've uh, Oasis Supersonic. You did that fabulous Senna documentary back in uh, 2010. Uh, Formula One, Drive to Survive, which has had such a huge effect on the Formula One industry. And before all of that, you're kind of responsible for Banksy. Uh, I wouldn't go that far and he'd kill me if anybody said that. But uh, no, I was involved in that film. Yeah, I was involved in that. Well, this was, it was kind of sad. Banksy was on the, he was significant, but he was on the cusp. And then Exit Through the Gift Shop came out and Banksy became the popular and cultural phenomenon that he has remained to this day. Did you get a cut? Uh, Well, I wouldn't say I got a cut, but I did, uh, I did very much enjoying being in and around him and his team. And I think, um, listen, that, that, that film is, uh, is a work of art because it's like the perfect Banksy film, isn't it? In lots of ways. And, um, no, listen, he's a genius and, uh, that film is all down to him. I've got very little to do with the kind of creative, uh, you know, reality of that film. Yeah, but you had to do the tricky bit, which is getting somebody who's, who is defined by their desire to remain anonymous to deal with you. I mean, that's a bit like the Six Nations. How do you how do you coax him out of his burrow? Well, we had a very good mutual friend, my uh, my ex flatmate um, who I used to live with in Los Angeles, Holly Cushing. She um, she was his manager. So then she said, "We need help to try and make this film. We will make a film about street art. How do we go about it?" And you know, one thing led to another, and what you see is the film that they ended up making. But uh, it was uh, listen. It's a very different experience to anything else I've ever worked on, inevitably, because of um, because of who he is and the way he operates. But um, very proud to be involved in that film. It's uh, it was a great film, and it got you know got nominated for an Academy Award, which was amazing. So uh, yeah, it was a mad experience. We did we did it all totally independently. We didn't have any kind of big partners on it. We did it all ourselves. The release of it and the marketing. So yeah, it was it was a trip. And is there a pattern in that? Do you do you try to find subjects? that other people have failed to get onto the screen. I mean, Formula One Drive to Survive is the, is the same kind of thing. The notion that the F1, which is a very tightly knit, very guarded community, particularly against each other and in, in informational competition, um, the notion that somebody say, yeah, I'll get them to open up and let me into the garages. In advance of you doing it, it would seem impossible. Yeah, listen, there there is a certain buzz in being the first to kind of do these things. You know, we... Um, when we made Senna, that was the first kind of big film that been made about him, and obviously, you know, Banksy. But yeah, when you get to these large sporting organisations, they don't really, you know, they know they should do the exercise of making a documentary, but obviously, their primary objective is to win matches in whatever, whichever field they're in. So it's a bit you have to marry the two, um, you know, exercises together with without making either of them really suffer. So. Um, 
Yeah, it's a it's a challenge, you know, but that's if it was easy, everybody would do it, I guess. But I really, really enjoy it. And I'm really, really lucky to be in this world whereby, you know, I'm a massive sports fan anyway. So to to be on the inside of these organizations and to try and help them grow through these documentary series is a great privilege. Well, you mentioned being a sports fan. I, I know and have read a lot about your significant rugby prowess as, as a younger man. Um, <laughs> what about your Formula One interest? Where does the motorsport connection come from? Well, really from making that film Senna, because my dad, bizarrely, a long time ago, was the account director for John Player Special Cigarettes. He's an advertising guy back in the day. And he used to do these um, campaigns, advertising campaigns, with that brand. And at the time, Ayrton Senna drove for Lotus, who were sponsored by JPS. So my dad would come back from these Grand Prix telling me about this incredible young Brazilian driver he'd met, you know, while he was at work. And just how there was something different about him, something special. And, um, you know, when you're sort of 12 or 13, that really captivates your imagination. Like, what is it about this guy? And so, yeah, he was lodged in my mind. And then, um, you know, one thing led to another. And then, you know, many years later, in fact, 10 years after his death, I had the idea of making the film about him. Um, and, you know, we got there in the end. But, yeah, it was uh, it was all motivated by my dad's strange, well, not strange, his career in advertising, you know, many, many years earlier. And that when I made the Senna film, and there was interest in Formula One about doing something, then obviously that was a great calling card for me. But that's interesting. That means that you and your dad have bookended the Formula One in terms of impact with broader markets. You've, you greatly increased or significantly increased the market attention for Formula One into a demographic that it wasn't particularly getting by, by making it a, a more humanised personal conflict. The John Player special thing was hugely influential. That Back in the day, I think that was the first major sponsorship. And if I remember rightly, Eccleston was first involved with JPS back then. And that was what in some part led to the corporatization and the big money of F1 and it changing from being an, am- an amateur gentleman's sport into being the professional vehicle it is. So essentially the, the, the Gay Reese family is, is, it's a bit like you made Banksy. You made Formula One as well. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, I should, I should have equity in uh, Formula One. There's no doubt about that. But um, no, listen, it's, uh, it's an interesting point you make actually because it was a very notable car, wasn't it? That black car with the gold kind of livery that, um, that Ayrton used to drive for Lotus back in those days. And um, yeah, I mean, listen, I was a young guy at that point in time, and my dad could probably speak more about it. Um, but obviously, Bernie's impact on the sport was vast, you know, in every single capacity. And um, it was a great, listen, it was a great moment in time. It was like all sport, you know, in the sort of mid-70s, late-70s, early-80s. There was a romance about it that maybe has slightly been lost a little bit these days, you know, because obviously sport is now massive business. I think the sport in general is maybe better in some ways. I think, you know, you know, I'm a massive Welsh rugby fan, and you think back to the glorious Welsh era and I was watching some stuff with JPR on the um on YouTube yesterday just reminding myself of what a player he was and what a what a gentleman he was and listen those Welsh teams were obviously you know iconic but I think rugby probably has as a game improved over the years so it's easy to look back at the romance of that of that generation of either Formula One or rugby, but um, maybe in some ways it's kind of a, you know, sport has developed. Well, it, it, well, it does beg the question, then let's do the fantasies of a football question. Obviously, you'd have to say that a modern rugby team and uh, modern rugby players would just destroy a team from the 70s or 80s by virtue of physicality and the, the strength and conditioning that there now is. Yeah. What about Senna versus Hamilton? Ooh, <laughs> that is a good one. I mean, I think that I personally think Senna was the greatest driver of all time. I mean, you know, Schumacher might have been more efficient and Prost might have been tighter, but, you know, for sheer 
speed and kind of visceral driving. I mean, you know, if you think about the the, the amazing Mercedes that you know that Hamilton had Hamilton had underneath him when he was winning all his world championships, you know, I think um be interesting to put Senna in that car and see what he would do with it. But you know, Lewis is an incredible driver as well. And you know, you look at Max today, I think that Max doesn't get the credit he's due actually, because I was actually speaking to Jensen Button about it the other day. And he was saying, you know, people say it's boring now because Max wins every race. But that car that Adrian New has designed is very, very difficult to drive because the amount of downforce it, it produces. And actually, you know, only Max can really, really handle it. I mean, Checo is a fantastic driver, but obviously he struggles with it compared to Max. I think in hindsight, we'll realise what a great driver Max is. But, you know, it's, it's very hard to know, isn't it? It's man and machine, the combination, different points in time. But for sheer sort of glamour and, you know, con- con- you know, attachment, connection with an audience and sort of mystique and aura. I think it's very hard to beat Senna. Well, then again, let us not forget Jackie Stewart in his uh, blue wife fronts, if I remember rightly, explaining um, downforce and drafting before the Monaco GP in 1974. That that does put him up there in, in the pantheon. <laughs> Fabulous. Oh, amazing. I love that film. Roman Polanski. I mean, great I film. know. I mean, let's not mention the war. Yeah, well, exactly. But no, it's a great scene, that isn't it? And it's uh, it's a good film, that actually. I must watch that again. But no, listen, he's a great as well, isn't he? You know, and also, you know, he he lived to tell the tale in a generation when drivers were sadly, you know, dying at a regular occurrence. Well, this is it, and he was one of the driving forces in in addressing that and and in actually yep. getting safety into Formula One that we now sort of take for granted. Explain then the rugby connection, because I know that you were uh, a you you sacrificed what could have been a fabulous professional rugby career as a, a, a hooker to get into the area of documentary making. Is this tapping back into the 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 dream that you lost? Do you know what? I've always, I've always been a massive rugby fan. I did play till I was about 18 and then uh, it got a bit too serious at university. So I kind of did the sensible thing and walked away. But um, no, I played for my school. I played a bit in London Welsh when I was a kid. I have to confess I'm a big Wales fan and um, amazing game yesterday. Wow. But so, yeah, no, I, I've always been a, very, very passionate about rugby. So when the opportunity came around to be involved with trying to kind of like, you know, make this Six Nations show, Obviously, it was just I jumped at the chance because it's a, it's a dream job for me in many ways. Um, and it's been great. It's been, you know, it's I'm really, really proud of the series. Um, I'm really pleased that it's had the reaction that it's had. You know, it seems to have landed really, really well with, a, with an audience, which is fantastic. Netflix has done a great job of getting it out there. Six Nations have done a great job of getting it out there. And I think it shows a side of rugby that, you know, really needed to be shown. It's, um, you know, international rugby is obviously, you know, a, a huge spectacle, but a bit like Formula One, you know, very little is known about the players who play it um, until you get inside this kind of these documentaries and you realise that you've got these cool young guys who, you know, train incredibly intensely and have to get themselves in an extraordinary kind of physical condition, you know, and mental condition in order to play top, top, top international rugby, which is just an incredibly, you know, challenging, tough, but kind of glamorous, poetic game. And um it was about time that somebody kind of had the opportunity to, you know, get behind the curtain and show these young guys for who they really are. And I think what's re- been really interesting about it from our point of view is just like, I think there are many, there are a lot of misconceptions about rugby. I think there's a lot of, you know, that kind of beer swilling, macho rugby club sort of type. And of course there's an element of that, but then you look at modern international rugby players and they come from lots of different backgrounds. You know, they're not all kind of like, you know, um, privileged 
private schoolboy is far from it. Lots of different backgrounds and lots of different stories to tell, lots of different kind of and challenges. Is that, James, is that a misconception or is that a function of the professional era changing the reality? It could be a bit of both. You know, it could be a bit of both. I think that, you know, I just think it's time that, you know, people were aware of, you know, the different types of people that play rugby. And I think the great thing about it is you can relate to them much more easily when you understand where they're all from because they're not all, you know, a, a cliched sort of type of upbringing. There's a vast array of people playing rugby and it's really interesting to be able to show that. How tricky was it to put together? Because rugby football unions have a, a reputation for being conservative, being relatively closed organisations, being clubs rather than commercial entities, or at least having a club ethos rather than a commercial entity, which can make them reluctant to move fast and innovate. Difficult to get all six across the line? Listen, it was, you know, it obviously had its challenges because like you said, you're making six series at the same time. It was difficult for us also from a production point of view, from a creative point of view, because it's a vast amount of, you know, uh, uh, there's a lot happening in a very short space of time from six different directions, which is, you know, requires a lot of people to kind of be on the same page to cover and then making sense of it and making it not just a highlights reel, but, you know, but a narrative basically, which people are going to be enjoy watching was the challenge. But they lent in, you know, they think that it'd be fair to say the process got easier the longer we were in there. And I've been really, really pleased um, this year, this season with how everybody's in, em, embraced the project again. And I think that um, it'll get easier and easier, but I get it. You know, it's um, nobody wants to upset performance. Performance is key, but there's a way of doing it, these things, which means that performance isn't affected at all. And that's what they kind of had to understand. Did any of what you discovered surprise you? I mean, I, I know in, in talking to some of the uh, professional players over the years, one of the things I've been amazed about is how controlled their lives are. The kind of things where they go to camp, they don't really get to see a lot of their family for six, seven weeks at a stretch. That kind of thing. Was there anything in that that you saw where you went, God, I didn't realise that was an intrinsic part of their lives? Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, I wasn't on the ground every day, but I think that, you know, what I think people don't realise about all elite sport these days is just how intense and, you know, what the commitment is Formula One drivers, they literally, you know, Grand Prix weekend, they don't have a minute to themselves, whether it's, you know, whether it's practicing in the car, whether it's marketing commitments, whether it's debriefing. And the same for rugby players. I mean, the build up to games and then the the, the let down after games is so kind of like, you know, carefully managed. And that's why I think it's, in, you know, it's important to shine a light on just the extreme commitment that goes into being an elite athlete. But I think people are really fascinated by it. I think people want to know what really goes into it because we've all just been used to watching the broadcast version of a live match, which is obviously super exciting and dramatic, but to be there before and to be there after as an insight, I think modern audiences crave. And I think it's, you know, the trainers have the station ever, ever since I saw cameras in the uh, change room of the, of the French football team at halftime during the world cup final. And you were seeing the team talk. I was like, my God, you know, that's like the pinnacle if people are showing this now, then, you know, we're going to, modern audiences are going to want to see more and more. And I think we've just been there to help them get that. I assume it must be some challenge in terms of logistics to put it all together. I remember talking years ago to the, the Deadliest Catch producers and they talked about running shooting ratios of sort of three, four hundred to one, where they would have to wade through thousands of hours of tape to make episodes. Is the same true for you? Because if you've got six football unions, you've 15 people per team minimum. So you've what? You've 90, you've 100 people that you have to cover across the course of an entire season. Who gets the unenviable task of wading through all of that? It's a very good question, actually. I don't think we're at that high a ratio, but we're probably at least 20 to 1, which is the normal for kind of observational shows like this. 
We have a team of people who will basically, well, all the people when they shoot it will log it at the time. So you'll know what they've tried to shoot, what the scene is, who's in it. And then it's all put into a huge database back at the HQ. Um, and then assistant editors go through it and make the uh, editing team aware of what's available to them. And it depends on what is going to be featured. But obviously it's tricky because you do film with more people than can possibly feature in the show. So you do get some disappointed people who give their precious time and don't end up in the cut, which I totally appreciate. But you'd be surprised how often then we use that uh, further down the line in a different way. So, do, you, uh, do you ever end up betting on the wrong horse? Do you think that guy's fascinating? Burn an awful lot of footage on him and then after about a month and a half realise, God, he turned out to be a complete anti-climax. <laughs> no, 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 not too often. I think, listen, everybody, you know, everybody's different, right? You get some people who are natural extroverts, some people who just don't fancy it. And I think that the people who are meant to be in these shows tend to come to the fore because they put their hand up. You know, you can't force somebody to be in one of these shows they don't want to be in it. And we totally respect that, you know, that's just the way it is. But it's interesting, sometimes the biggest stars, you know, in a sports sense, aren't the biggest characters off the pitch and actually don't make the best TV, um, for want of a better expression. So, yeah, you never quite know until you get inside the guts of these organisations. So within the Irish team then, who who was your favourite? Uh, I mean, you know, full of characters, that lot. I mean, you know. Yeah, all <laughs> Name names. Yeah, I mean, Porter's obviously a great character. He was fantastic last year, gave us a tonne of his time. Um, Peter Mahoney is a personal favourite of mine. I think he's a great guy, you know, and hopefully he's going to feature a bit more season two. Uh, yeah, we'll see. I mean, listen, it's a, you know, there's a lot of characters in that camp. There really are. Some of the coaching staff as well are, are really funny guys as well. I want to talk to you briefly about Oasis. Before I do, I, I hate to be past remarkable, but I do have to ask. You played at, a, at an amateur level, uh, London Welsh for, um, you played for London Welsh as hooker. What happened to the rest of you in the intervening years? I assume you must have been a much larger unit as a younger man than you currently are, because you look, you're like a whippet these days. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd worry about you playing hooker at your current size. No, you know what? I was always in the wrong shape. I was always too tall and thin. So I don't know how I ended up there. I was really slow. So there's no point in me being in the backs. <laughs> and I just, uh, for some reason, I was very good at hooking the ball. So uh, when you're a kid, those sort of things are important. But no, I was totally the wrong size. And uh, the body is definitely feeling it now as a result of my ripe old age. But uh, no, I loved playing rugby as a kid. It was such a, uh, it was such a buzz. Lastly then, Oasis Supersonic. What was the experience of Liam and Noel Gallagher like? <laughs> Well, where do you want to start with those two, honestly? <laughs> I mean, you know, because they weren't, you know, as they are now, they weren't on talking terms. So we were making the film about both of them independently, if you see what I mean. So it was um, it was an interesting experience because they're both extremely different human beings, but both great value on their own terms, I have to say. And um, one of the best weekends of my life was probably taking that film down to Cannes with Liam. That was uh, that was an experience. Um so yeah, that, it was a great. I mean, listen, I was an Oasis fan. It was again, it was it was a laugh and a privilege to be on the inside of that story. But it was Noel's idea that film. He came to us to to try and you know encapsulate what that moment was all about on film, and uh, I think we did a pretty good job of it. But yeah, that's they don't grow on trees. Those two, that's for sure. And is there an off switch when you're in Cannes with Liam? Does it stop, or is he always daft as a box of frogs? I mean, it was funny because we had this big party in Cannes and. Um, he was uh, he was in relatively lo-fi, you know, to begin with, but by the end of it, he was like sitting on this big chair, which like sort of looked like some sort of throne, and there was a queue of about five hundred people waiting to come and kind of basically kiss the ring. So yeah, he had a good time, I think. <laughs> I think he got a lot of uh, a lot of attention. <laughs> James, really appreciate your time this morning. That is James Gay Reese. He is the producer of Six Nations Full Contact, which obviously is available for streaming now. 
The Anton Savage Show. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday mornings from 10. On News Talk.